Hey, I'm Will, and this is Benj. We're both church planners trying to work out how to form churches in this post-pandemic world. I lead a church that's trying to grow big. And I lead a church that's trying to grow small. But we share an interest in the beautiful and diverse future of the church in Australia. What will it look like? How will it adapt and innovate and thrive? If you're asking these questions too, then join us as we host a range of conversations with diverse thinkers and practitioners around what comes next. Welcome to the Forming Church Podcast, brought to you by Gen 1K and our vision to see a thousand healthy churches in a generation. Hello, Forming Church listeners. Hello. Hello, Bench. Hello, Will. Well, this episode, I feel like we say this kind of thing a lot, but this episode is a real treat. What a ripper. What an absolute ripper. An absolute ripper. Uh, It could be the season highlight for some. Yeah, I I imagine it could be. I mean, theoretically, every episode could be. So it's a safe thing to say. (laughs) But also, I do want to hype this up because it is worth hyping. Yes. We had a chat. You know, around here, we do love a good title. Oh, job we title. Do. We do. Before we say the guest, let's say some job titles that they yes. have held. He he has held some some great uh, job titles. Vice President for Vocation and Formation. Mm. Professor of Practical Theology. Oh, love that. That sounds nice. He's and now, now serves as the Vice President and Chief of Leadership Formation at Fuller Seminary. There's some good job titles. Chief of Leadership Chief. Formation. <laughs> Chief. I like that. Uh, Todd Bolsinger is a uh, incredible author. Um, he's written a bunch of books. The one that I really love is uh, Canoeing the Mountains. And he's just released a new book called Tempered Resilience, which is how leaders are formed in the crucible of change, which I, I can't think of a better time in in, yes. uh, in recent history for that book to be released. So He shared uh, with us that in the last season of, you know, online webinars and such. He has spoken to over 25,000 people. So we are lucky to be counted among those. Yes. Toddy B. Enjoy. Toddy B. This episode is brought to you by Morling College. As well as their great theological study options, Morling run free courses, open nights and public events on topics like transforming vocation, faith in action, bioethics and more. And if you're a church planter, they even run a church planting course called Scent. They have a range of scholarships, campuses in Perth and Sydney, as well as online study options. You can find out more at mauling.edu.au. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today and making some time. We really appreciate uh, you being with us today. Uh, We'd love just to start off just to know what a normal week in the life of Todd looks like. Well, in COVID, it looks like every single day it is the same. <laughs> like, so I get out of bed, I go make coffee, I do some reading, I walk into my office and I mostly do uh, coaching calls, podcasts, webinars. I speak and write and then I go exercise, walk my dog, <laughs> cook dinner, go to bed and do it again the next day. Yeah, so. Awesome. And what's the what does the work piece look like for you? What how do you spend your kind of working hours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of my working hours is it goes back and forth between either 
uh, speaking and doing webinars and podcasts around adaptive change or coaching and consulting with groups on a deeper dive. So it's some kind of rhythm of those two things. That's where I get to spend most of my life, which is really great. I mean, I, 27 years, I was a pastor and I loved every bit of it. And then seven years, I was a seminary administrator helping lead an organizational change. And I liked every bit of that, but I actually get to spend almost every waking moment working directly with leaders who are in the midst of change. And that's pretty great for me. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> so you have this real focus on change, transformation, innovation, adaptation, these kind of themes, which are so relevant in the times that we're living in now, what initially mm -hmm. led you into that space? I mean, you've been doing this for longer than, you know, the current need for mm -hmm. dramatic transformation through COVID. What initially led you into some of those themes? Yeah. So, um, so I did my PhD work in spiritual formation. I was really trying to really work on the notion of communal practices of spiritual formation that would be helpful for churches to develop a, a spiritual formation that would move in a missional direction. And um, I ended up speaking for a group of uh, Methodists, uh, Methodist pastors in New England. And in the middle of my conver conversation, which where I was talking all about taking the church deeper, about growing deeper roots and deeper spirituality, somebody, um, I did a question answer time and just dozens of people asked me the same question, which is, how do we keep our churches from dying? <laughs> and so it taught me that very often the conversation I want to have is being disrupted by the conversation that's keeping up leaders at night. And so that led me into a process of thinking about the overlap between spiritual formation and the way in which we need to learn to lead differently in our rapidly changing world. And then I went through some of my own processes with that in my own leadership. And that led me over a longer period to write some books and to start talking about the notion of adaptive change. Hmm. How did you answer that question when they said, how do we stop our church from dying? Wrong. I got. I gave them a wrong answer. I actually. Uh, that's what. I, that's one of the reasons what sent me. I, what I realized was at the time, all what I could answer is I could tell them what I did. Well, here's here's what I did, and what I realized is that that now I understand that that is giving a technical solution to an adaptive challenge. It is trying to give people a quick fix when you've got to take people through a formational process, and so it was in my discouragement about being unable to answer that question that led me on a journey of my own rethinking and relearning how to lead all over again. Mm, that's great. Uh, your, your book, uh, Canoeing the Mountains, on a, on a personal note, has been really helpful for me and um, has been the, the kind of guiding narrative and, and metaphor you use in that is, has just actually helped me frame so many things as I planted a church and led through change. Um, and I would, I would implore our, our listeners to, to read that. But um, could you just explain just that, that central metaphor, how you got to it yeah. and, and – I think it's so relevant for the church today, uh, yeah. post twenty twenty, post COVID, or in the midst of COVID, um, in a in a you know increasingly changing world. Yeah, yeah. So canoeing the mountains comes out of a three hundred year old mental model that was that was dominant in you know eighteen hundred, um, that where everybody in Europe was trying to find a water route from Asia to Europe because the central way of growing economically would be to control the water routes because it's easier to move raw material over water than it is over land. So you know when the Europeans stumbled upon America and thought they discovered something like there was nobody there, <laughs> they um. There was a huge landmass in the way. And so for about 300 years, all people of European descent wanted to do is figure out how to get through the darn thing. And how, 
how can you? And so they're trying to find a water route that would connect basically the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean through, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi River, the Missouri River. Well, Lewis and Clark were sent by Thomas Jefferson as the Corps of Discovery to, to find that water route. And what they did is after 18 months of going upstream up the Missouri River, they came to a place where they thought they would run into the Columbia River. They would take their canoes out of one stream after going upstream, and they would now get to go downstream. So it was about to get easier, they thought, and they run into the Rocky Mountains, which are a range of mountains that are 300 miles long uh, wide, jut up to 14,000 feet. I know I'm talking in American terms to somebody in Australia, but, um, you know, they are huge. They're immense. Yeah, (laughs) they're just huge, immense, impassable, and you can't canoe over them. If you're thinking that your future is about taking a water route and you are a canoer and you're facing mountains, you have to drop the canoes and figure out how to get going. And what I was really taught, use that as a metaphor to say, leadership in a world that is radically different than we expected it to be requires us to have a different kind of leadership. We can't rely on our expertise of the past. Instead, we have to adapt as we go. And that requires us how to learn and face loss. Those are the two critical parts that most of us didn't sign up for when we signed up to lead a church. We didn't think we were going to have to, we thought we'd have to learn and then become the leader. We didn't realize that we'd have to learn as we go. And we certainly didn't expect we were going to have to face loss. We thought that we were going to have great solutions that will go from glory to glory. <laughs> mm. so, Such a great yeah. metaphor for the church and for many settings, obviously. And uh, you can just see how many people um, you know, and I'm probably, I've been guilty of this at times, just keep trying to canoe on, yeah. on that hard land. Um, mm-hmm. There's probably many ways you could answer this question, but I'd be interested if you could just paint some of the things you see as those surprise Rocky Mountains and maybe yeah. some of the canoes that people continue to return to. Yeah, yeah. So in the West, the huge disruption is that most of the West was founded on and has been affirmed as being nominally Christian, right? It's called a Christendom world. It means that uh, the Christian Christianity has a home field advantage. Like it's like you're always playing before your own home fans a game. You're, it's never an away game. And what you realize is as the culture began to shift, most of what we have been trained to do was basically um, educate, minister to, care for, love, teach within a context that assumes that Christianity is the dominant cultural narrative. And that's been rapidly changing in the West, especially in Europe and in places like Australia and others for years. But everybody's mental model and training is based on that. As if we need to, the goal is to get back to that, is to get back to the place where we're always have a home field advantage. We're always, you know, um, in the center of the culture. And the, the truth is what we're actually being learning is the gospel often calls us to the margins, calls us away from the center of culture. And that as we're moving forward into the future, it's going to require that we learn and lead differently. And that for many of us, we weren't trained that way. Our seminaries didn't train us that way. We weren't prepared for that thinking. We weren't prepared, you know, that every single, you know, the mission field is not somewhere far away over seawater. The mission field is right across the sidewalk (laughs) and we are having to grapple in a profoundly different way with the way we learn to lead. And that requires a lot of changing the way we lead. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any um, any structural changes in terms of canoes that we need to, to leave behind? Is there anything that you see broadly across, you know, the leaders that you interact with uh, and the churches they lead or the organizations they lead that you, you feel like 
you know, these are some of the things that actually structurally we should leave behind? Or is it, or is it more uh, our approach or mental models? Actually, one of the ways is thinking that structures are contingent, right? Structures are always, if you think of structures as um, wine skins or wine bottles and not the wine, you're pretty quickly, you start realizing the structures are always meant to be contingent. Most of us have become experts at the structures. So we end up defending the structures, protecting the structures um, and those things. So a good example of this is, I think what COVID has helped us recognize is that um, our reliance on say big Sunday morning programming even the way that most churches now made a shift to measuring worship attendance as the critical metric is now really becoming to be revealed as something that doesn't necessarily bear fruit. I mean, when if if you think you have a big thriving church because a lot of people show up or click on or view and you realize how quickly they can change with a click of a mouse then, then really we got to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be a church that is a community that is uh, of the body of Christ, that is the family of God, that is brothers and sisters? Like now all of a sudden we find ourselves asking much larger questions about our assumptions about what is a healthy church, what is a community of faith that raises people? You know, there's, for me, the deeper issues are less structural. They're more the assumptions the structures are built on and that we are actually have an opportunity, especially during a crisis like COVID, to look at some of those underlying assumptions and begin to address those. Mm. Well, this is exactly right. I mean, all of that was a reality before COVID, but it was a, probably a lot easier to um, be under the illusion that we're yeah. still in the water, so to speak. Yeah. Um, COVID is, was and is an illusion-shattering phenomenon. And, uh, you know, it seems like it's accelerated a lot of trends that were already happening, yeah. but they've been accelerated accentuated, brought more to the forefront. What are some of those that you really see happening, you know, as you look at the kind of shifting waters that we're in, what will be some of the trends that you see accelerating that the church needs to really be grappling with at this point in time? Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me answer that question in two ways. Here's just a personal anecdote. Last year, March 13th was the last day that I spoke to a, a large group of people. I got on the plane, flew home. By the time I got home, I took a lift, got back to my house the world had changed by that Sunday. Almost every church I knew was now online. You know, like I said, every church became a television ministry overnight. Like it was Facebook live and then I on camera and I had 15 speaking engagements canceled. So for the, for the better part of the last five years, I'd spoken about 30 times a year. That meant getting on a plane more than every other week to fly to some place to speak. I had 15 of them canceled. So I thought, well, there's the next six months of my life. I'm now going to be at home. I did 95 webinars in 2020 <laughs> and I spoke to more people in 2020 than I spoke to in 2019 and 18 combined. I spoke to over 25,000 people around the world. Like what in one sense you go, wow, that's amazing. Well, that was what was really amazing is because of the way I was speaking using zoom, I could have people chat in answers so I could get real time data from people. So one of the questions I always asked was tell me the underlying issues that are being revealed during COVID. Like, like the, like the underlying issues of a human body, that if you have these health issues, you're more, COVID's more dangerous. Like my dad is 78. He has several of them, right? Diabetes, neuropathy, heart disease. What are the underlying issues in your church? I found many different answers, but four really dominant ones. Number one, lack of deep discipleship. We, we have not been developing the kind of people who can persevere under trial in a way that is a witness to the world 
Like we are, we look just like the world in COVID. Second, lack of deep community. We were talking about that earlier. People are supposed to be brothers and sisters, deeply connected to each other and a deep sense of a community. And they're clicking off or checking out or disconnecting or, or in the United States, dividing over politics. Third, lack of leadership um, capacity. You know, there's an old saw that says 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Most pastors discovered in their church, 5% of the people were doing 95% of the work. And if your entire church was built on your Sunday morning production, which is two or three people who are in charge and get all of the glory and everybody else is a volunteer, and all of a sudden you say, hey, we actually need to develop a network of churches, home churches, groups of discipleship, people doing mission, you know, who can do that safely in COVID, and you don't have the capacity, the lack of leadership capacity. So lack of deep discipleship, lack of deep community, lack of leadership capacity. And then the fourth one, I think many of us in the West are really recognizing is we are so used to being in the center of culture that we don't know how to speak prophetically about some of the issues, especially around race and injustice that many of us are, are that are becoming more, much more apparent during this pandemic. And that we've just been, we've not known how to be wise or faithful to the scriptures in a kind of prophetic collaborative way for justice. So these are much deeper issues than, you know, should we wear masks or should we have come back to church or should we have a band, you know, like we're talking about much more profound issues that are going to be getting revealed during COVID. Mm. Oh, they're, they're good things. They, they strike me as very uh, Jesus type things uh, to, yeah. to, to make disciples to build family and community, to raise leaders, and to speak prophetically to the culture. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's 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 pretty much Jesus' mission right there, isn't it? And uh, yeah, it's pretty easy to stray from that. And I think I, the thing I've been wrestling with in terms of the Sunday gathering and the presence and the community of people coming together, I've realized over COVID that that is less central and less important. That we we we're okay without it, and yet it is immensely important as well. And it's this weird kind of yeah. dichotomy and, and tension of, of trying to place things in the right place without making them the thing. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. I think, I don't know, I think I speak for a lot of leaders that that is a real tension it's, and it's a fine line and it can look the same from the outside in, in many ways, but it's it maybe more of a, an inside heart posture thing. Do you think, yeah. uh, yep. how, do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think about this. I think what happens is there's this old um, saying that sometimes is attributed to Winston Churchill that says, you know, you build your buildings and then your buildings build you, yeah. right? Um, I think what's happened over the years is we have built our structures, our programs, our ways of doing things, and now we are trying to keep building them. So like, think of it like a literal building. If you make a decision, if you read Acts 2.42 and you read that what's central to the church is, you know, the gathering of believers in, in breaking of the bread, prayers, the apostles teaching, communion, and you realize they did that in home churches. So they were able to do it without building a single building. And now we spend millions of dollars on buildings. Um, after a while, keeping those buildings going becomes part of what we do. Now, I'm not saying something wrong with buildings, but I'm saying we should think of buildings the way we think about other tools we have. Like I know a lot of churches in the United States who during one time all bought buses like they all have. We have a church bus that we put all the kids in. Well, insurance rates change that. We're almost no church I know has a church bus anymore. And I think I think we have to think hard about the way in which our practices is what gets in the way. It's our practice of ministry our, our lack of certain spiritual practices 
that actually shape us. We are shaped by what we do with our bodies and what we do in our practices. And so um, I think this is letting us ask some larger questions about that. Mm. Do you have some examples that come to mind of either leaders who have, have seen that personal, I guess, crisis and need for transformation and leaned into it in a positive way that has led to a new way of being in their mm-hmm. leadership or churches that have done that? Have you seen some yeah. like positive examples that you can go, this is actually what it looks like when somebody s- sees that reality for what it is and begins to, to pivot into something new? Yeah, yeah. So, well, so I, I coach a lot of churches through these processes. And part of what I re- recognize is um, we quickly want to find the example we can grab onto. Like, so we're always looking for the best practice, mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing. It's, it's very human. The problem is, is they're always very contextual. So like, for example, I wrote Canoeing the Mountains about my own transformation. What people have often asked me to do is to show up at their place and share that story so that they would do the same thing. Oh, so if we're only multi-generational, if we tear down our buildings, if we commit ourselves to Christian community, then we'll grow. I'm like, those were our things. What you have to do actually is get really clear on your core DNA, your like what is essential about you, what what the Catholics call your charism, like what is your unique gift that is your gift to the church and the body, and then figure out what a healthy adaptation of that looks like to carry out your mission. Mm. And that's going to look really different in different places. So in one of the churches that I, that I work with, they were growing like crazy and they were in a big building project. They'd already raised a bunch of money. They were about to launch right when COVID started. And now they're coming through COVID and they're realizing, you know, we're never going to do that building project. We've got enough buildings. What we've discovered is there are different ways we can do ministry that continues to touch people and grow. And they gave, you know, one of the things they did uh, last year is they took a hundred thousand dollars and they paid off medical debt for poor people in their community. Well, you can actually in the States and places you can buy medical debt from people who take on medical debt for like 10 cents on the dollar. So they paid for million dollars of medical debt from people. Just, you know, people woke up in the morning and got a note that said, you have no more debt, no more medical debt. And they did it because they said, we can do that. We would much rather be doing that than spending a hundred thousand dollars in a, a, a new whatever closet to hold our stuff. <laughs> and so, and and it was it's those kind of decisions that people make because they see the possibility because they start they start experimenting into the future. Mm. So I often tell people, in an uncertain day, don't try to predict the future. It's impossible to predict the future. Instead prototype your way to the future. Mm. Like what's what, what tech companies teach people to do, like do small experiments, small, modest experiments, prototype your way to the future. Um, learn as you go, take one step at a time, do the next thing and the next thing. And what you'll find is you start moving much quicker than trying to predict what the future will be and trying to go there. Mm. Oh, that's great. Do you have any tips around for, for leaders or church planters, people who are leading organizations? around prototyping like any practical tips and actually how to how to how to physically put put flesh on that that idea yeah yeah so so three things number one get really clear on what you're not going to change like get really clear on your essential like we're not letting this thing go here's a value this is really important and and then have that conversation candidly and try to get that as small as possible because everybody wants to go is goes well this is essential. And so is this and this and this and this and this, right? Get really clear. Second, figure out the question you want to have answered. Most people when they experiment, they're asking the question, did it work? That's the wrong question. The question is, what are we going to learn? Mm. 
What are we going to learn? So when I was a senior, I was a pastor at the church I was at, um, my worship director turned 30 and I was thinking at the time I was almost 50 and she had a birthday party and I, my wife and I laughed, okay, we're going to go be the oldest people at this party. We're not going to know anybody. Actually, we got there. We knew everybody. They would all been young adults in our church and they'd all left. <laughs> and so I showed up and I'm like, so I'm meeting all these people. And what I realized is all these young adults weren't embarrassed. They were thrilled to see me. They just didn't have any sense that they... Uh, owed me anything having left my church. So I went to my worship director and I said, here's what I want to know is I thought, I realized now I thought hiring you, we'd get all that generation back. They love you. They're your best friends. They're not interested in our church. My worship director got immediately defensive. Like I'm trying. And I said, no, 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 no. I, w- I want you to just, will you ask any of them if they will just meet me for dinner where I can just ask them some questions? I just want to learn from them. And it was profound. We did six weeks of just meals where I just wanted to ask them questions and learn. And out of that whole group, about four people came back to the church. Like, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to actually learn. So first of all, figure out what will never change. Second, figure out what you want to learn. And third, be re- learn how to fail fast and fail cheap. Make it a modest experiment. Um, you know, and they always say fail fast so you can learn quickly. And well, venture capitalists will tell you fail cheap. It's my money, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so learn how to spend, do modest experiments that will help you learn something that you can then grow on and build from. I love that. I've uh, been reading the Lean Startup, which is very much yeah, along those yeah. lines. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And applying yeah, yeah. that to, to church planting and yep. just having that. Yep find the the minimal viable product. Minimum minimum viable product. Yeah. And the whole point of that is your minimum viable product, you don't discover right away. You discover it by by building something, learning from from it, test testing it, learning, build, test, learn, build, test, learn over and over and over again. And that process, what's hard about it is that most of us have gotten support for our ministries by believing that we have a great vision. Right. I I don't think anybody can sell a great vision today. I think what you could sell is your clear capacity to see the reality of the challenge, mm. right? Like a, my the vision you want is the vision to see the brokenness and pain to call people to, not the solution. We're going to learn the answer because we see clearly the need for people's pain. Mm. I wonder if one of the things that that stops that sort of micro experimentation and willingness to fail is some of the systems that we've kind of we live within where there's the the paid professional you know and that sense that the leader has to be the visionary and has to be the one with all this responsibility of doing great things how do you think churches that are in that model and pastors are like if i do a small failed experiment what's that going to mean for that whole system how do you disrupt that yeah. Well, one of the ways you disrupt it is by having these kind of conversations. So this happened to me. I was um, I was asked by my seminary where I work, Fuller Seminary, to start. I've done now three startups for them. I'm on my third one. And in my second one, um, we had a vision. Like we were really aware. Here was the problem. Less people are coming to seminary. Less people need our degrees. Less people are willing to take on debt. So we started asking this question about how can we serve leaders? And we said, here's our idea. We will not, we'll worry about, we'll keep giving our degrees, but we're also going to develop resources for people, whether they get our degrees or not. So I, I said that in a meeting and one of the people in the meeting happened to be a lawyer who works in Silicon Valley with a bunch of startup people. And he said, 
what if I got some startup people in the room to hear you talk about this and give you feedback? I'm in. I fly up there. I give them my pitch. At the end of my pitch, the guy looks at me and goes, you've been doing that pitch around the school a lot, haven't you? I said, yeah. He said, because you just told us a bunch of reasons why this is good for the school. Todd, nobody cares what's good for the school. They only care if your school cares about them. What I say to church pastors all the time is nobody cares if your church survives COVID. Nobody cares. What your neighbors care about is do you care about them? Mm. So don't cast a huge vision. Go out and listen to people about where their genuine pain points are and ask how in the love of Christ we can serve them and make sure it's something that they will experience as being relevant to them. It shows that they care about them. And the guy looked at me like, I'll never forget. This is a venture capital guy. He looked at me and goes, I think Jesus said something about this. Like, we, like we're supposed to love our neighbor, right? I said, <laughs> when the venture capital guy gives the theology professor a Bible lesson, it's a bad day for the theology <laughs> professor, right? But that's, that's what I was experiencing. Oh, that's good. Um, your latest book, Tempered Resilience, is mm. uh, about, about what it takes as a leader to, to sort of live and thrive in, in change. Um, can you talk about that in in the midst of, you know, prototyping many experiments, looking to the future, not trying to serve our structures? What what does it actually take as a leader to, to do those things? Yeah. So, um, for the best past five years, I've traveled around the country and even to four other countries uh, to talk about adaptive change. And what I found is every single place I went, they all said, no matter what you talk about, about adaptive change, please talk about sabotage. Talk about the chapter on sabotage. Because the thing that's really killing us is that. And I started listening to people and I realized they would, one guy said to me, I think I can learn to lead change. I'm not sure I can survive it. Because one of the things that's normal and natural about human systems is they so grieve loss that they become deeply resistant. And we see this actually in the scriptures with the Israelites, right? They get through the Red Sea, the greatest miracle that will happen until the resurrection. And six weeks later, six weeks, because they're camping and they thought it would be easy and it's not, and they're hungry. They're saying, you know what? At least when we were slaves, they may have killed our children, but we had leeks and onions for lunch. Six weeks later, they want to go back. And what I became really apparent is the soul-sucking thing for leaders is not the challenge of COVID, a changing world, secularism, people not believing. It is your own people who say, let's take on that challenge. And as soon as it gets hard, they start sabotaging. They start stopping it. They start resisting. And you, what we need, leaders need is resilience to wisely face that resistance. They need what I call tempered resilience, like a, a tempered tool that is more stronger and more flexible than its raw material. And that's a formation process. Mm, that's very good. You got to expect the resistance. It's going to come. Are you ready? Are you ready to be able to continue to move through it? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Similarly, all of our listeners should go and grab that book. But what are some of the kinds of, you know, broad brush um, practices or, or internal yep. work that people need to do in order to develop that tempered resilience? 
Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tempered resilience is it's a blacksmithing metaphor. So how do you take, how do you take steel and turn it into a tool that can, you know, a tempered tool that can hew, that can chisel, that can carve, that can transform. And the answer is it's a process that starts in vulnerability. So here's the interesting: thing. You, you strength in a leader actually starts in embracing and experiencing your own vulnerability. Mm. Your capacity, like, like for God to be able to shape you, you've got to be willing to be so vulnerable and honest before God that God, that you're actually, it feels almost like you're, like you're falling apart, like your mm. steel that's been in the fire so long that it's almost liquid. It almost like becomes oozy. Um, it's got to get to 2000 degrees and so that it can take the shaping. And so the first part of that um, is, is that part. And then, so it needs its vulnerability and then it needs the anvil like that holds that oozy steel is our relationships. Um, more, what you need to understand is the more difficult your challenge of leading, the more relationships you need. Every moment when you think you have to stay by yourself is actually when you are the most dependent and you need partners and you need mentors and you need friends. You need all three and they are really different. Mm. And then you need a set of spiritual practices that will actually shape you and form you for becoming stronger and wiser. And so it's a, it's a formation process that I work through the book that uses this blacksmithing metaphor all the way through. Very good. Um, just a communication question. You're a, you're a writer, author, you, you communicate a lot. And uh, a theme I see in some of your work is building around that a, a central narrative, a central m- metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. I assume that's intentional, right? <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Why, why do you yeah. do that? Well, for one thing, it's come, it comes, uh, my dad was a big old storyteller. So, um, and when I started speaking as a younger man, everybody, uh, everybody was funny and I wasn't. <laughs> So I, so I started telling stories and what I realized is we, when we're, when we're in a, in a neighborhood, we can find ourselves in it. So, you know, so I use a blacksmithing metaphor. I've blacksmithed exactly twice. I've taken, I've taken two blacksmithing classes. There's an urban blacksmithing community in Los Angeles, California, in a neighborhood that has not had a horse in a hundred years, but there are artisans who do blacksmithing and watching that work kind of that violent heated formation made me said, that's what spiritual formation's like. Mm. It's like that. It feels violent. Sometimes it feels da- dangerous sometimes. It, and that's what leadership formation is really like. And so when I can say it's like, then even if you've never seen a blacksmith in your life, you can get, you understand the metaphor. So it just becomes a powerful way of, of communicating. I think. Mm. Oh, I love it. You know, I love the the central narrative and story focus. We, we are storied creatures, meaning-making creatures. And, and that, particular, yeah. that particular image is so helpful and it strikes me how much it stands in contrast with a lot of self-help material, which is build yeah. yourself up, be empowered, be strong. It's like actually be broken down, be liquid and yeah. see the invitation, the beautiful invitation at the, at the end of yourself. Yeah. So thank you yeah. for that, Todd. It's, it's ministering to me personally, and I'm sure it will to others that listen to this. One more question, and then we're going to hit you with a few just rapid fire, one word, one sure. sentence kind of questions. But the last one mm. before that is um, for a young leader in the world today, maybe mm. someone who's 18, 19, considering mm-hmm. you know, leadership in the church in the future, in a very unpredictable future, what would be your words to that young leader at this point in time? I think the first thing I would say is, um, you're going to be tempted to believe that you'll become a leader if you fake it. 
there's an old there's a statement in the state in the United States sometimes that says fake it till you make it. That's deadly. Mm. It's like the worst advice you can be given. Because even if you fake it and you make it, you still haven't made it. And the reason why we see leaders all over the world blowing up is because they are they are have got a false front. So you've got to become courageous about your own vulnerability. And to be able and that means being honest to God and honest with the people. So if if I could give you anything, what I would give you is a mentor, but relationships. And here's an interesting thing. Youth mentoring is built on mentors reaching out to youth. Adult mentoring is built on adults reaching out to people and being vulnerable before them and asking for help. Don't, don't say, where can I find a mentor? Like you see, I will say this and I'll get emails the next day. Can you get me a mentor? And my answer is don't try to go find a mentor. You be a mentee, show up vulnerably with trusted people Mm. who you can trust to be open before them and say, this is what's going on in my life. And I want to be shaped. Can I can can I buy you a cup of coffee and I spend 20 minutes with you and ask me a very particular question and be honest about that? If you can develop that habit of having partners, you know, people who care about the mission as much as you do, and friends, friends, people who care more about you than about what you will do for God. Really, like I, I said, but my friends are the people who say, Congratulations, Todd, you wrote a book. And I'll go, Thank you. Do you want to read it? And they go, No, actually, not at all. Just happy for you, you wrote a book. And your mentors are the people who care about you for the sake of your mission. So if I could give, if I was, if I was the bishop of every young leader, I would say, if you try to lead anything without a mentor, without a therapist, a spiritual director, a coach, then it's leadership malpractice. Mm-hmm. If LeBron James, the greatest basketball player in the world, needs a coach, you need a coach. Good stuff. I uh, This has been a very rich conversation. I can't wait to listen back and um, take more notes. I've been trying to take notes on, on the side here, but uh, realizing that I can listen back, which is a good thing. Uh, we're going to hit you with some rapid-fire questions. Uh, so these are just sort of off the top of your head, one, one word, one answer, um, one sentence. Are you ready? We'll try. We'll see. <laughs> What do you think is the biggest danger to the church's future? Um, racism, white, white supremacy. Mm. What is currently giving you hope about the church's future? Uh, honest people authentically acknowledging where the church is failing and being willing to stay with it. What's influencing you right now in terms of authors, podcasts, books, voices, thinkers? What's most influencing me is um, uh, the work of Ignatian spirituality. <laughs> um, it is St. Ignatius's spirituality of spiritual exercises. It is spirituality for the sake of mission that is deeply affecting me. Mm, very good. If you could only recommend one book to people for the rest of your life, you have an infinite supply of it that you can give every time you recommend it, what would that one book be? the bible i mean really like i mean i wouldn't give people the scriptures it's, and uh, i'd be serious it's assumed about that. it's assumed in the question uh, okay <laughs> that they get the scriptures they get, okay. they get the scriptures. that's that's 66 books if you want to recommend yeah, exactly book from the bible that's fine yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's well okay then the book of matthew i think if you had nothing else but the sermon on the mount mm. 
and you learned it deeply. I mean, that's I, that's probably for me. I keep coming back to, uh, even when I said Ignatian spirituality, for me it really is the Sermon on the Mount. I believe my life is to be the embodiment of Jesus's prayer: "Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth." And I mean that as the, as particular as you can get it, like in your apartment, in my house, in um, a, every place where our feet touch. That is worthy of giving my life to. So if I could give anybody anything, I would give them the Sermon on the Mount and I would say, this is probably enough. Mm. All right. Uh, final words to anyone who is maybe about to plant a church, start some sort of missional endeavor, any any parting wisdom for them? Mm. Remember that none of Paul's churches survive today. There's not a single church that's ever been planted that sur- will survive till Jesus comes back. So planting a church is really a way to make disciples. It's profoundly powerful. We need more of it more and more and more because we need other models and stuff. But the goal isn't to build a church. The goal is to build God's church, which happens through making of disciples. Wonderful. Uh, Last question, Todd, how can people connect with you, find your work, uh, follow along with all the great stuff that you put out in the world? Yeah, yeah. So the easiest way is through on our website. It's Depree, D-E-P-R-E-E, Depree.org forward slash church, Depree.org forward slash church. That's where I lead the Church Leadership Institute at Fuller Seminary at the Depree Center. And that's the easiest way to stay in touch with me. I'm on Twitter on Todd Bowl at Twitter, um, but that's mostly through the Depree Center. Very good. Thank you so much for your time, Todd. I, uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people will uh, glean value from it. So uh, thank you for your time. And, uh, My pleasure. We will uh, hopefully chat again in the future. I hope so too. Yeah. Nice. Thanks, nice. you guys, very much. Thanks, Todd. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to give Todd a free pass for giving away the book of Matthew. He's the first person we have allowed to give away the Bible or a book of the Bible in our rapid fire question. I feel like we need to introduce that question better because people look at us like, well, is this a trick question? Yeah, we're bloody heretics. Yeah. Anyway, I like the way that he nuanced that. Sermon yeah. on the Mount. Go read it. It is It's. It is a good book. It is. Yeah. It's a good sermon as well. <laughs> it's, it's a great a, sermon. It's a banger sermon. A banger sermon. Uh, what was your takeaway, Will? Oh, many a thing, Benj, many a thing. But I think the, I think where I felt my heart rising the most, where I felt the most resonance was when he was actually talking about that, um, that tempering metaphor and the, the melting down, the falling apart. Um, yeah, I just, if I'm honest, I feel like recently I've been through a little bit of a season of some of that where it's like things feel like they're kind of, some things feel like they're being melted in the fire. But actually, I, I heard that and I thought that's an invitation mm. into greater depth, not the time to tap out. Mm. So maybe other people need to hear that. But for me, that was like my vulnerability. I mean, we know this, right? Like our our weakness is where Christ's strength is found. So mm. every time we feel weak, there is a strange reason to celebrate that mm. if we lean into it in a humble and vulnerable way. That's good. Maybe if maybe if you came over to the big church side, you wouldn't you wouldn't feel broken down because things are so peachy. Maybe over I here. wouldn't be. Maybe I wouldn't be formed. <laughs> <laughs> Snap. What about you? <laughs> What's your takeaway from that conversation, big church boy? 
Oh, um, two for me. Am I allowed to share two? Yeah, I guess I, so. I, I love when he was talking about prototyping, experimenting, uh, failing fast. Um, the thing that really stood out to me was don't work out if it was a success or not, but worry about what question you want answered. I think that is mm. that is a very good way to approach experimentation. The other little throwaway line he said that if you fake it and make it, you haven't made it. Oh, that was very good. Damn. Drop the mic. Oh, and just what what a what an indictment on every fallen leader. You faked it. <laughs> you didn't make it. Wow. That's very good. Yeah. Anyway, let us know your takeaway. You can uh, drop drop something in our Facebook group. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, you can find that on forming it's called the forming church podcast facebook group is that what it's called Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) y'all catch you next time hey it's jamie join me and some friends next week for a round table discussion where we unpack the ideas from this episode and what they look like in different contexts